Hello, and welcome to Power Pros Podcast, episode 184. I'm your host, the Hoff, Chris Hoffman, and with me once again is my co-host and nemesis, Pete Mashad. Hello, Chris. Howdy, Pete. Good to have you back. Yes, we are here once again to talk about what's going on in the world of Nintendo. So we've got some game impressions, we've got some letters, and then we've got this week's big topic, which is the 25th anniversary of one of the greatest RPGs of all time, Final Fantasy VI. However, before we get to that, we're going to kick things off with discussions of some new games, starting with Witcher 3 Wild Hunt Complete Edition for Switch. This is an M-rated open-world action RPG in which you play as Geralt of Rivia, a monster slayer known as a Witcher. You have melee attacks, ranged weapons, and magic at your disposal, and your goal is to travel a war-torn land and track down the Child of Prophecy. Supposedly, the game features 150 hours of gameplay and has a big emphasis on choice and consequences. I've not actually had a chance to play this game myself, but Pete, you have been spending some time in this world and revisiting this game, correct? That's right. Played quite a bit of this on Xbox, but decided, you know, Switch being portable and all that, I wanted to pick it up again. All right. Makes sense to me. Yeah, I've heard great things about this series, but I have never laid hands on it myself. So, Pete, I would like you to tell me what the big deal is about this game and why it's so exciting to have it here on Nintendo Hardware. All right, well, you know, so this happens to be the third Witcher game, but you'd really be forgiven for not knowing that. Well, it isn't the title, so... Or no, well, or not having played the other games, basically. Okay. They weren't quite the popular juggernaut that Witcher 3 has turned out to be. So, as you mentioned, the game stars uh, Gerald, and he's this Witcher, and it basically means that he's paid gold to rid the land of monsters. Yeah, he's sort of a mercenary of sorts. Yeah, and like, I mean, that's like griffins, harpies, ghouls, water hags, gargoyles... And plenty of just other things that go bump in the night. Mm -hmm. The Witcher universe has a lot of backstory. But basically, there's really just like two main factions that are fighting in the land. And you kind of end up encountering both over the course of the story. There's a lot of gray area in The Witcher. Like, no group is like clearly good, clearly evil. It's just kind of a big mix, you know? Right. But they do all have one thing in common. They pretty much all hate Witchers. (laughs) (laughs) That seems inconvenient. Well, they don't hate witchers per se, but they are sort of like prejudiced towards them. You know, they like treat them poorly, look down on them. They say that, you know, all they're in it for the money. Apparently, all the witchers are mutants. I didn't know this when I first dived into the game or heard about it, but. Okay. You know, like the X Men? Well, they live for a long time. They also can't have children for some reason. It's like apparently training in magic damages your sex organs. Okay. That's true. <laughs> Rendering them infertile. That sounds inconvenient, but okay. Yeah. So the main story of this game is you're tracking down your lost love, Yennefer. And then you kind of find out that this girl witcher who you've trained, uh, her name's Siri. You actually have a flashback montage in the beginning of the game that is your training as well. You find out she's in grave danger. She's basically being chased by this group called the Wild Hunt. Ah, uh, okay. They're kind of like a combo of White Walkers and Ring Wraiths from Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. They kind of just come in whenever they want. Everything in the area turns like frosty, like White Walkers, and they just go wild. And obviously, in the beginning of the game, you can't really do much about it, but towards the end, that changes. So, is she the child of prophecy then? Well, yes, but you don't really know, but yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and she's obviously, like, pretty good. And throughout the game, you kind of learn that, you know, she's gained some serious powers. You know, and I think all witchers kind of struggle with that. Yeah, to go into the controls a little bit, they are complicated to go into. I mean, it is something similar to, like, a Breath of the Wild, you know. Not anything you wouldn't expect. I think what really gets hard to get used to is that the controls change for multiple functions depending on your actions. Okay. So, for example, there's a control scheme for exploring. There's a control scheme for combat. There's a control scheme for swimming and diving, horse riding, sailing. You know, and in general, this you know has a lot in common with these other open world games like you know Skyrim or maybe like I said, Breath of the Wild. Mm-hmm. But what I think really separates Witcher is the combat gameplay. It's really fun. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's fun, and it reminds me a little bit of, like, a Batman Arkham City. Not exactly, but it gives you kind of an idea. Essentially, you're kind of reacting to what people are doing. You need to strafe around. You can roll to avoid attacks. And then when you're kind of in this, like, large group of enemies, 
and you'll be locked onto one in particular, but you have to keep an eye on what's going on in the background because you can easily just get taken advantage of by three or four like low-level baddies if they just kind of gang up on you and start beating you up. So is there a simple counter button like there is in Arkham Asylum? Not exactly, but there is abilities to cast spells, so that helps. So in the middle of your sword play, you can also like, you know, light some people on fire or, you know, <laughs> push them back with like a force push kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, certain enemies have like keys to beating them. And you'll learn that, especially bosses, especially like the bigger enemies. Okay. There's like certain patterns you have to use or certain spells that work well. Makes sense. And in fact, when you fight an enemy, you'll actually unlock them in your bestiary. And then it might tell you which spells work well against that particular enemy. Okay. If you haven't figured it out yourself. And figuring all that out and using those tactics in combat is a big factor as far as the fun goes in the game, huh? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the gameplay of combat is fun enough that you actually don't try to avoid enemies. You usually, you know, want to encounter them. Cool. The world really comes to life in this game where, you know, you'll be on your way to complete some quest and like all of a sudden you'll encounter a new quest line that makes you also want to complete that and then takes you to a whole new area. And, (laughs) you know, it's got the open world adventure, but it's really down to a science in this game. And it just is full of like, you know, you stumble into this little ghost town that's empty and you're not really sure what's going on. So you kind of want to, you know, look around and try to make heads or tails of what happened. And, you know, maybe you'll encounter somebody and they'll tell you to like do something. And anyways, it's very compelling to do the side quests where in a lot of games it maybe isn't. So, okay. Sounds like good story progression and good gameplay progression, though. Yeah. And, you know, on top of that, Witcher 3 is a huge game. I mean, I think you touched on this, but I would say the main quest, just running from, like, point A to point B, weighs in around 50 hours. Okay. I think that's how long it took me, maybe just a little over my first playthrough. There's just so much to do that it would likely take you closer to 100 hours to really see it all, do it all. But then if you're a completionist, it could probably even take you double that if you were really going for it and like, (laughs) you know, maximizing all the items and exploring every cave. I mean, I could see easily spending over 150 hours in this game if you... Yeah, 150 hours is what the publishers are saying. And yeah, that certainly sounds like a lot of content. Yeah. And the funny thing is that, in my opinion, is just the main game. But what you're getting here is actually the complete edition, which also features two expansion packs, Hearts of Stone and Blood and Wine. Right, right. I was wondering about those. Yeah, and I actually never played those. I meant to go back and play them. You know, I started a main quest on my switch Mm -hmm. but i quickly realized that i don't know if i can do that game again (laughs) at least not with all the other games that i want to play right now yeah 100 150 hours is a lot of time to put in yeah so i read that the expansion packs when you select them you can start as either of those expansion packs because they're kind of their own quest line okay it says that you start with the uh level and experience and items to jump right into the expansion packs so if that's what you want to do and you've already played the main quest, you can actually pick up these expansions and just kind of jump into the game at a high level and complete oh, that's and complete these. Yeah. So I may go back and start one of those just so I can get back into the swing of things a little bit. Yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah, I was reading up on those a little bit, and apparently Hearts of Stone is the side story in which you get caught up in some plot about accomplishing these three impossible wishes. Mm. And then Blood and Wine is where you travel to a new land and investigate a series of mysterious murders being committed by some vampire. Mm. That uh, sounds intriguing. So in general, you know, the game on Switch, it's all there. It is the same game that I played before. I mean, obviously the graphics have taken a hit, but really the compromise is that you get to play the freaking Witcher on the plane or on vacation mm-hmm. or on a bus. To me, I'm not appalled by what I'm seeing in the graphics. It is a very pretty game. I think the only reason people get a little hung up on it is that if you've played it on the other consoles, you've seen how pretty it can be. So I think there is some kind of contrast where it's like you have to compromise a little, but I don't see anything that's out of the ordinary when I'm playing this game. Like, it's all there. And there's even moments where you look at some scenic backdrop and you're like, oh, it's actually very pretty. That's good to know. Glad to hear it holds up, even in portable mode. Yeah. And then I will say just one of the funniest things about this game, and I know you're big into voice acting, so I wanted to mention this. It took me a while to notice this, but all the characters in the game have like an English 
like Lord of the Rings, maybe Game of Thrones style accent. Okay. Except for the main character. Geralt actually sounds, I mean, he damn near sounds just like Solid Snake. <laughs> okay. And it's it's kind of the weirdest thing. And like, I didn't notice it forever, but once you notice it, it's just kind of odd. And you're like, why does he sound like an American and everyone else does not? Hmm. Is there a hind D in the game? No. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, but aside from that comment, all the voice acting is top notch. I mean, even like the randos that you encounter, the, you know, people out in the middle of nowhere that just have like a few things to say. It's all very high quality and it really draws you into the game. Another fun little thing that happens when you boot up a game, it kind of summarizes where you are in the storyline. Oh, yeah, that's always convenient. Yeah, so it kind of gives you a little, like, watercolor-style story with a little subtitle that tells you exactly what's happened. And there's a narrator, even. Oh, nice. Yeah, there's something kind of like that in Dragon Quest XI, and I found that to be very, very handy. Yeah, I mean, I always welcome when a game tries to remind me of where I am and what I'm doing, so... Yeah, if you take a break for a few weeks and then come back to it, it's like, where the heck was I? Oh, now I know. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, Chris, I highly recommend this game for you. I think you would enjoy it. Well, it certainly sounds like it has a lot going for it. And yeah, like I said, I've heard a lot of great things about this game, so I would love to check it out. Yeah, it sounds like it has a lot of fun stuff to do. It sounds like it has very high production values. And you know, like I said, it is very, very acclaimed. So I will definitely give this one a spin, given the opportunity. Yeah, and honestly, support CD Projekt Red. They really seem to be you know, doing good work. Their games are very bug-free for some reason. I mean, compared to like something like Skyrim, <laughs> that was like a nightmare when it came out. Uh-huh. You know, they're this Polish developer that like kind of came out of nowhere and they've just been making quality games. So I'm happy to support the fact that they're now on Switch. All right. Very cool. I will definitely check it out if I have the chance. I hope I get a Geralt Amiibo soon. <laughs> okay. I'll uh, talk to Nintendo and see what I can do. <laughs> Put him in Smash and then he'll get one. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I have not had the chance to play that one yet, but what I have been playing on Switch is Return of the Obra Dinn. Mm. Man, I'm jealous. I want to play this. Yeah, this game is a mystery adventure set on a boat called the Obra Dinn, set in the early 1800s. And you know, if you've seen anything about this game before, you know the first thing you will notice is that it has this really minimalist presentation with its visuals. It's all monochromatic, black and white by default, although you can select other palettes. But yeah, it's got this very dithered look, and it's quite striking and reminiscent of classic computers, only much more fluidly animated, and it really sets it apart from any other game out there. You know, I think when we were first talking about this game and saw it was coming to Switch, I mentioned it looks like an old Mac game. And indeed, the default color palette is actually called Macintosh. (laughs) That's really funny. Yeah. Anyway, beyond that, the next thing that you will quickly notice is that despite that minimalist presentation, it is actually really a rather violent game in a sense. I mean, the main gameplay component is that your character, who is an insurance agent, which, as I probably mentioned before, might be a first in video games, (laughs) but you have this sort of magical stopwatch that lets you see the moments surrounding a person's death. And... It's a pretty unique gameplay mechanic. You activate the watch whenever you find a corpse, and then you get to hear a few seconds of audio. You then get to see a freeze frame of whatever happened to that person, but it's fully interactive in 3D, so you can totally explore the scene from different angles, walk around, see what else is going on. So even though everything is frozen, you're still getting this complete window back in time to that moment. Anyway, once you do this, you'll kind of come to understand perhaps why this game is monochromatic because pretty much every flashback is someone getting shot in the face or (laughs) stabbed or impaled or crushed or otherwise killed or murdered. It would probably be pretty darn gruesome if this were in like full color. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, apparently the Oberdin was not a really fun place to be. It was beset by sea monsters and giant spider creatures, and there were murders and conspiracies and mutinies, all this good stuff you'll get to learn about. So, yeah, not really a pretty sight. It is probably for the best. It is rendered with this black and white aesthetic. Hey, spoiler alerts. I'm not going to get into any detail beyond that. All right. I mean... When a ship comes back after being missing for five years and no crew on board, you kind of have to know that something bad happened. <laughs> right, but giant spiders? I didn't know that. At any rate, 
your objective in this game is to piece together what happened to everybody that was on the Oberdin through these flashbacks. There were 60 people on board, you have drawings of all of them, and you sort of have to determine everyone's name, how they died, and who killed them. And it's actually pretty darn challenging. You often don't have much information to go on. You know, once in a while you might actually hear somebody's name spoken, but more often it's something like, you know, you hear some guy speaking German, so you have to figure out who is from a country that speaks German. It's like, okay, so that's probably this guy. Or you might hear that two characters are related, so you have to figure out which characters are siblings or are married or something like that. And then sometimes, even though you see someone dying, it's hard to tell actually how they died. Like, you know, they might have suffered some injury hours or days before, and so you don't really know what caused them to die off. So it really does require a lot of logic and really careful examination of the clues, and maybe even a little bit of guesswork. It is certainly quite challenging, I've discovered, to figure everything out. Sounds like Professor Layton. <laughs> well, I would say it's probably you know more challenging than Professor Layton. I mean, Professor Layton, I think everything is sort of clear. And, you know, in those games, you can actually spend hint coins to learn more information. And as far as I can tell, there's not really anything to put you on the right track in this game. Maybe I'm just overlooking it, though. <laughs> but anyway, having that level of challenge, you know, is a pretty good thing in a title like this, because beyond that, there really isn't that much to it. The game is not super interactive beyond walking around and using your stopwatch to see these people's demises. You know, you can like open doors and you can climb ladders, but not much else. Like the first thing that happens in this game is that you climb onto the ship and then you hear the guy down below saying, hey, here's a box. You have to bring it up onto the ship. And so like I was looking for like a rope. I thought maybe I could tie this rope and pull the box up. But no, there's like, you know, nothing interactive like that that I can tell so far. You have to just walk back down to the boat. You get your item and then you walk back up again. <laughs> there's uh, really nothing more to it than that. They're teaching you how to use a ladder. <laughs> I guess so. But yeah, there really aren't any object-oriented puzzles to solve of that nature. Uh, so if you're looking to find items and use items to sort of drive the adventure forward, you'll have to look elsewhere. Huh. So all in all, did you beat it and did you like it? Uh, I have certainly not beat it so far. I think I have only figured out the fates of nine of the 60 characters at this point. But, you know, there is a lot I like about the game. It is very, very unique. It's also very methodical. But it has a narrative and an aesthetic that really make it stand out from the pack. However, it really is a thinking game. I mean, in a way, and this sounds weird, I know, it's almost like Sudoku <laughs> in that you're trying to sort of fit all of these known quantities into a very specific arrangement. Right. But often the only way of doing that is through the process of elimination. But, you know, instead of grids of numbers, it's people and causes of death. So, you know, if that sort of thing sounds interesting to you, this is definitely a game for you. Personally, I do kind of wish there were a little more to it and maybe a better way of returning to scenes to look for clues because, like I said, figuring it all out does take an awful lot of uh, you know, careful analysis and you know, lots of hands-on examination. You know, given all the other great options that are out there on Switch, you know, I don't really think this is a must-have, but I would like to continue playing. I would like to solve the mystery and figure out everything that happened. To me, this sounds like a perfect game for like a flight, a long flight where you're just like committed to it for, you know, four or five hours. And you're like, OK, I'm going to sit down and crack this thing open. Yeah, that would probably be a great way to experience this game and spend some time with it for sure. Cool. I'll have to check it out. All right. There is one other game I've been playing recently, but it is not on Switch. What? It is actually, believe it or not, on 3DS. Wow. What? Yeah. The 3DS version of Shakedown Hawaii is now available if you'd like to play it on that system. I'm going to call shenanigans on this. <laughs> nope, it's true, it's true. I mean, the game is very much like its Switch counterpart in that it's a top-down, retro-style, Grand Theft Auto-inspired crime game. Once again, you're playing as this old, out-of-touch CEO, and your goal is to rebuild your business empire through more aggressive business tactics. And by aggressive, we mean jacking cars, destroying buildings, burning down forests, stopping deliveries to the competition, robbing houses. 
even going on shooting up rampages against drug cartels, and of course, shaking down local businesses for protection money. <laughs> then on top of that, there's also this monopoly-style component where you're buying up every building and business you can so that you can basically own the entire island. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, and it's all done with this very satirical comic twist. All the missions are very short and pretty much perfect for bite-sized portable play. And aside from the story mission, the game is indeed, you know, this huge open-world sandbox. You can spend as much time as you want just goofing around, engaging in optional tasks or arcade-style action missions. You know, whenever you shake down a business, you get a different challenge, like smashing up the store or scaring the customers, maybe chasing the store owner with a blow dryer for some reason and trying to ruin their hair, uh, stealing their car. Sometimes you get tossed in a dungeon and you have to escape. So there's plenty of variety. So far, the game is not terribly challenging. I'm pretty sure I said the same thing about my experience with the Switch game, but it is absolutely fun. The 16-bit style graphics look great, and the music is very good as well. You must have loved it so much, you played it twice. Well, I uh, certainly you know, relished the opportunity to check it out on 3DS and see what the differences were. And I was kind of hoping the game was going to be in 3D. I thought that would be the coolest feature about having it on the old 3DS, but unfortunately, that is not the case. I mean, I thought this game would have looked fantastic with stereoscopic 3D, but no, that feature is not in there, which feels like a big missed opportunity to me. Another thing to contend with is that the screen is a lot smaller than the Switch's screen, so it can be a little tough to see all the action. Now, the game does include variable zoom levels, which can be adjusted separately for when you're driving or for when you're on foot, but you change it via menu. It's not just on the fly, like you hit a button and it suddenly zooms in or out. For me, it was a little bit hard to find a balance. Like, the regular 100% view is a bit small, but doing a double-sized close-up view, you know, the sprites on the screen are kind of too big and you can't see enough of the action. And then you can sort of go halfway with a 1.5 times view that seems kind of ideal size-wise, but it smooths the pixels, so I don't really love that either. Mm. You know, mostly I'm just using the regular 100% wide view, which, you know, includes when I'm on foot or in the vehicle, but it does take a little bit of getting used to. And then another issue unique to the 3DS version of the game is that, you know, all your stats and the HUD elements are on the bottom screen, including your map. You know, in a lot of 3DS games, that's great. But in this case, you know, I found the map at the bottom of the screen to kind of be a hindrance. Like when I'm driving around the city streets really fast and the streets, of course, you know, they're crowded with traffic and all that. If you look down to check on the map, it is very easy to crash. So Almost every time I did that, I either just, you know, drove through a bunch of oncoming traffic <laughs> or I like hit a wall and went flying off my motorcycle or something. You know, on Switch, there's just a mini map overlaid on the main screen. So it's not a problem, but it's something to contend with in this version. Yeah, it sounds like real life when you're looking at your phone. <laughs> yeah, kind of. You don't want to do that. So with all that said, this is still a very fun game. And honestly, I probably like it better than actual classic top-down Grand Theft Auto games like GTA 1 and 2. But if you have a Switch, and if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do have a Switch, I would say go with that version. It's $5 more on Switch than it is on 3DS, 20 on Switch versus 15 on 3DS. But I would still say that if you have that option, playing it on Switch is absolutely the way to go. All right. Duly noted. Okay. That takes care of our game impressions for this week. And while we don't have any news on this show... We do have a little bit of a listener mail. Our first letter this week comes from Noah Urbanovsky, who writes, Howdy, Power Pros. Recently, the mobile game Dragalia Lost announced a Mega Man crossover coming later this year. Thinking about Mega Man and your love of it made me realize that I don't remember hearing your opinions on Dragalia Lost when it first came out. It didn't launch to much fanfare, after all, and most people ignored it as another anime gotcha game. Well, it is still that, but after trying it out, it's my favorite of Nintendo's mobile titles. Despite its gotcha nature, it's much more generous than, say, Fire Emblem Heroes or Mario Kart Tour. It also has simple but fun gameplay and a wide cast of eclectic heroes to summon that make it such a welcoming experience. It's almost as fleshed out as a standard RPG, in fact. Did you guys ever try out Regalia Lost, and what did you think of it if you did? And, if not, would this Mega Man crossover get you guys interested in trying it out? <laughs> well, the Mega Man question is certainly for you, Hoff. 
Ah, I suppose so. But yes, I actually did play this one back when it first launched, and I believe we talked about in episode 153 of the podcast, to be specific. That's amazing, Hoff. You must have some sort of, like, photographic memory. Oh yeah, encyclopedic knowledge, you know it. (laughs) But yeah, I thought that the gameplay was pretty decent, and even if touch-driven action like that isn't really my thing, I did think it was fairly enjoyable. I played somewhere into the second chapter, but at that point, I sort of hit a wall with the difficulty, and I kind of stopped playing at that point. So I am excited about that Mega Man crossover, and because of that, I did fire it up recently, and oh my gosh, I was so overwhelmed. Like, first of all, I had to download four gigs of updates to play it. Wow. And I had no idea what was going on. There are like 20 touchscreen buttons on the screen at any given moment to choose from, and I'm like, oh man, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? It took me like 15 minutes just to figure out you know, how to start a quest. So yeah, I am very, very overwhelmed by it at this point, but uh, I'd like to try to get back into it for sure. Yeah, I honestly haven't played Dragalia Lost since it came out. I remember, you know, a big problem for me was living in New York, being on the subway a lot and not having uh, internet connection. It wasn't... uh... Oh yeah, yeah. You pretty much have to just play it at home when you've got good (laughs) Wi-Fi. So I haven't picked it up since then, but uh, we'll see. I will say... That when I went to Japan last year, I heard one of the songs from the game. I mean, I don't know if it actually originated from the game or they also licensed it, but yeah, uh, Bokurano Network. It was playing on the radio. I was like, man, what is this song? I have heard this song. How do I know this? Was this in some anime I watched sometime? And man, it like bugged the heck out of me for months until I figured out it was from Degralia Lost. It's a pretty catchy song. <laughs> uh, can I hear a rendition of it? Uh, no, it's all in Japanese. So uh, I'm going to have to pass on that one. Oh, Sorry. Man. Our other letter this week comes from our good friend Brian Booth, who writes, I recently finally downloaded The Messenger, and I can't get enough of it. I don't recall if you've mentioned it on the show. Have either of you played it? If so, what do you think? If not, I highly recommend giving it a shot. I don't think I've had this much fun with a platformer since Shovel Knight. Oh, man, The Messenger. Yeah, I definitely remember talking about this at some point. Yeah, we definitely did. I think it... Back in episode uh, 149, to be exact. <laughs> wow, look at you doing it again. Oh, yeah. Just talking about The Messenger kind of makes me want to play The Messenger because it's a fun game. The platforming is on point. The soundtrack is rocking. And I really thought, like, the I think you and I disagreed on this, Chris, but the dialogue in the game was really funny to me as well. Yeah, I think you definitely liked that part more than I did, but, you know, I still love the game nonetheless. I mean, I thought it was fantastic. I love that whole switching between the 8-bit and the 16-bit aesthetic. And uh, yeah, the way the gameplay evolves is just really, really cool. You know, unfortunately, I did end up getting stuck at this one point trying to get an optional collectible. It's like, no, I can't go past this point until I've gotten this one thing. But it was so hard and I never actually did it. And so I just kind of left the game hanging at that point. So by now, probably my skills have deteriorated to nothing. And I'm probably going to really stink if I go back to it. But yeah, this was one of my favorite games from last year. I'm pretty sure I ranked it as one of my top five or top ten games of the year. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I love the gameplay mechanics. I love the look. And, uh, you know, I'd really like to go back and play that DLC that came out recently. But I believe you have to actually beat the game before you can access that. Um, And I hear it's very challenging, too. But, uh, yeah, great game overall, and I would love to have the opportunity to go back and experience all the remaining content that I've missed. Yep, I love it. Wow, did we agree on something again? (laughs) Yes, yes, I believe we did. Nemi's Unite. (laughs) Nemi Pound. (laughs) Okay, that takes care of the letters for this week. So I think it is time for us to close up the mailbag and take an intermission. And then after that, we will be discussing this week's big topic. Wait a second, huh? Huh? Chris. Huh yourself, Pete. What are you stopping me for? It's time for your mission. What's going on? Uh, nope, not a chance, senor. It is time to hassle the hop. Oh, right. Yeah, I should have seen that coming. Okay, well, in that case, let's just get over with. What do you got for me this week, Pete? All right, dear video game professor Hoffman. Yes? One of the things we talked about earlier this show was the idea of buying a game multiple times. Like for me, it was Witcher, and for you, I think it was Shakedown Hawaii. Yes, that's true. What game would you say you have purchased the most over the course of your life? Huh. That is an interesting question, I suppose, but probably one I can answer fairly easily. And I suspect it is probably Mega Man 2. Oh, I thought you were going to say Mega Man Soccer. 
<laughs> no, that one I only own once, I'm sorry to say, since it's only been released on the Super Nintendo. But Mega Man 2, and a lot of the early Mega Man games for that matter, have been released in multiple forms. But Mega Man 2, not only do I have it originally on the NES, but I also have it from Mega Man The Wily Wars on the Genesis. Uh -huh. uh, more recently, that one got ported over to the Sega Genesis Mini. I mean, maybe you don't count those ones, because it's technically part of a different game, but I do have them in that form. <laughs> and I also have it on the NES Classic. I have the Mega Man Anniversary Collection, which came out on GameCube and PS2 and Xbox. There were virtual console versions I bought on Wii and Wii U <laughs> and 3DS. There was the Mega Man Legacy Collection, which is out on Switch and 3DS, and I'm pretty sure I have it on PS4 as well. <laughs> Plus, there was like an exclusive Japanese remake that came out on PS1 and then was available for download on PSN. And, you know, I'm not really sure how many copies that comes to so far, and I'm not sure if there are any I'm leaving out, but there probably are. <laughs> but, yeah, that's like more than a dozen times that I bought Mega Man 2, so I'm pretty sure that is the one. And honestly, I don't mind. That is my favorite NES game, even more than any Mario or any Zelda game, and I will happily pay Capcom a nominal fee to play it on any device that I can. Oh yeah, I have it on cell phone, too. Wow, you're like a Mega Man 2 monger. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Mega Man 2 hoarder, I think. Something <laughs> like that. Yeah, that, that sounds better. Well, really, you can never have too many copies of Mega Man 2, in my opinion. <laughs> never have too, too many? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now we can go to a break. All right. So, we will now take our intermission, and then when we come back, we will discuss this week's big topic the 25th anniversary of Final Fantasy VI. All right, we are back, and we are ready to discuss this week's big topic, which is the 25th anniversary of Final Fantasy VI, which was originally released in North America back in October of 1994 as Final Fantasy III. Sweet mother of pearl, that makes me feel really old. <laughs> yeah, 25 years already, quite the anniversary. But yeah, this to me is one of the greatest games ever made, certainly one of my all-time favorite RPGs, and so I thought this is definitely an anniversary worth celebrating. And to do that, we are going to count down the top 10 most memorable moments of Final Fantasy VI. Warning, there will be spoilers. <laughs> However, before we get to that, I just wanted to ask you, Pete, you know, are there any particular special memories you have about this game? Is there a reason that you think it stands out even after 25 years, and why this game is so special. Yeah, I think Final Fantasy VI really is the one that kind of nailed the RPG formula, at least from a JRPG standpoint. It really is the game that you can kind of look to and be like, man, this game had it all. It had an amazing story, amazing characters. It had these memorable moments, which we're about to cover. And, you know, it still stands as one of the highlights of, you know, games of my childhood yeah absolutely i kind of feel like this was sort of the perfect combination of everything and you know prior to this game 
I really was not an RPG fan. I mean, this was not my first RPG by any means, but it was the first one that I really got into. You know, I tried Dragon Warrior on the NES, and I was kind of bored to tears. <laughs> I tried Final Fantasy on the NES, but, you know, something about it was just lacking. It wasn't very user-friendly. The story wasn't that powerful. You know, I tried Final Fantasy 2, a.k.a. Final Fantasy 4, but the presentation was kind of a turnoff for me. But... When 6 arrived, or rather when I saw previews of it, you know, in magazines, I just felt like, wow, this looks really, really cool. And so I was really hyped for it. And even though my previous experiences with RPGs hadn't really been that great, I somehow knew that this one would very possibly be a turning point for me. And indeed it was, you know. I really thought that the graphics had come a long enough way that I was finally able to appreciate the presentation the soundtrack is certainly something you can't leave out it's really really amazing even all these years later and another thing that was great about it was that it was also very accessible for rpg noobs like myself like when you died you kept all your experience so even if you lost you continued to make progress and nothing was ever a waste right and this game, you know, basically convinced me that RPGs were awesome, and I've been a fan of the genre ever since. You know, I even went back to some of the previous games to see what I missed. Like, you know, I did end up playing Final Fantasy IV in its entirety. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, something just came into my head while you were talking is the atmosphere of this game. You know, it really just captures a lot of different environments, a lot of, like, mm-hmm. you know, there's moments that are actually scary. There's moments that are, like, very somber yes there's moments that are uh you know very exciting yeah anyways i think we'll get into some of those as we go along but yeah i I mean i don't really remember video games as a medium doing that well before this game yeah i think you make a bunch of very good points there and it's for those reasons you know when the game came back on game boy advance and i got to cover that title when i was at nintendo power you know i wrote the article and i called it the finest fantasy because I did and still do believe that it really is one of the best examples of RPGs out there. It truly is a beacon to the medium. (laughs) Anyway, with that said, let us get in to our top 10 most memorable moments. Starting with number 10, the opening in the snow. It all started with this. The adventure begins You have these three sort of mysterious characters marching forward in the snow in these armored mechs in, you know, the best 3D that the Super NES could handle. It's very cinematic, but you don't really know what's going on. But the melancholy music and the mystery of the situation really did make for an intriguing introduction. It's like, you know, what are your characters doing? Who are you? Why are you here? You don't know all the details at first, but it really has a strong impact on you, and it really makes you want to play the game and find out. Right. It's very compelling. And like I said, the whole atmosphere of this scene is very interesting. Like, I can still remember it in my mind, and I haven't played the game, and uh, it has to be at least over a decade. Anyway, very cool. And it almost feels like a play. Yeah, and the way the credits are rolling while you are seeing the characters walking along like that it's very cinematic and also you know even with all its 16-bit simplicity you can actually kind of feel the cold while they're going through this scene you know yeah absolutely moving along to number nine the transformation of figaro castle so you know not too long into the game only a couple hours in the main character tara ends up fleeing from this town where the game began and, you know, she was actually an agent of the Empire, even though it was unwittingly so. So she and Locke the Thief travel to Figaro Castle to meet King Edgar, who is supposedly working with the Rebellion and is likely to help you out against the evil Empire. So you go there, sure enough, he helps you out, but the Empire's agents show up and they attack and they set fire to the castle because they think King Edgar is a traitor, which, you know, he actually is. <laughs> but this part is great and memorable for several reasons. One, it introduces Kefka, who is a great villain. And at this point, he's just kind of this psychotic jerk. And you really get to see him in all his glory during this scene. (laughs) It's true. Second, when the bad guys set fire to the castle, I'm pretty sure that some of the dialogue, at least in the Super NES version of the game, is meant to be a Beavis and Butthead reference, which, you know, 25 years ago, that was pretty hilarious. (laughs) You know, I always wondered that. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I'm convinced that the fire, fire, ha-ha stuff is absolutely supposed to be Beavis and Butthead, but (laughs) could be wrong, I suppose. 
But then, third, and perhaps most importantly, is that this situation is all resolved when Figaro Castle actually transforms, you know, it tucks in its wings and just goes underground to escape, which is, you know, just plain cool, and it leaves Kefka just in the middle of the desert throwing a tantrum, <laughs> and all adds up to a great and very memorable scene. <laughs> yeah, the things they do with the Kepka sprite in this game are pretty funny. Yeah, definitely. He's upside down, he's shaking his head, he's, <laughs> yep. his eyes are popping out. He's jumping up and down. For some reason, he's like such a bad guy, but like they make him kind of weirdly lovable. <laughs> yes, he is sort of endearing, especially during the early goings of the game, that's right. for sure. Exactly. Okay, number eight, the appearance of Umaro and Gogo. You know, one of the great things about Final Fantasy VI is its wide, diverse cast of characters, and most of them automatically join your party at some point. But near the end, there are two completely optional and very cool characters that can join your party. One is Gogo the Mimic, and the other is Umaro the Yeti, who, you know, strangely enough, looks almost exactly like Pete if Pete's beard were white. <laughs> I guess you'll find out when I'm an old man. <laughs> Anyway, both of those characters are really powerful, and the side quests that you go on to get them are fun and sort of unexpected. So that stuff being in there as late game content is just really excellent, enjoyable, and memorable addition to the game. Yeah, and who doesn't want to have a Yeti in their party? Absolutely. Everybody's always ready to Yeti. <laughs> Koopa. <laughs> okay, next up, number seven, the Fanatics Tower. This is also late game content. You know, near the end of the game, one of the optional tasks you can undertake is the area known as the Fanatics Tower. This part is memorable mostly because it's just so darn challenging. You have to climb this massive tower, probably dozens of stories tall, and you are intended to rely solely on magic. Almost all physical attacks are disabled. You know, if you survive, if you make it to the top, you can get an item that lets you cast two spells at once, which is pretty great. But surviving the increasingly tough enemies and maintaining your MP can be quite a challenge. A lot of the enemies on your way up even automatically reflect any spells you cast at them, so you have to work around that. So it is quite tough. There are no save points. And then on top of that, I believe the boss there has this tendency to cast a spell when he dies that will pretty much always obliterate all the members of your party unless you're like already completely maxed out at level 99. <laughs> so you have to really be prepared for that. I mean, there is a spell to counter it, but uh, yeah, it can be quite the challenge. So all in all, quite a memorable section of the game just for how tough it is. Yeah, I mean, I remember it, but I also remember never beating it. <laughs> yeah, it does take quite a bit of preparation. What's funny is that you end up getting a, you know, a bonus that would help you beat the boss. But at that point, you've clearly already beat the boss. Like <laughs> You're way beyond powerful enough to finish the game if you're able to beat the tower. Well, there are certainly some good strategies you can use to get there. And you know, being able to cast two spells at once never hurts, but uh, you do make a good point. <laughs> Number six on the list, getting the Falcon airship. There are two airships in this game. But after you lose the first one, you have to go on a little quest to get a second airship. And to do that, you have to explore a place called Daryl's Tomb. It's a surprisingly emotional area in this game. It delves into the backstory of one of your party members, Setzer, and the music that it plays is this really haunting version of the previous airship music. It just really makes it hit home. And, you know, more than just the dungeon itself, is this feeling of emotion and sadness that the scene imparts. And I really am impressed with that. Yeah, I mean, it's exciting enough when you get an airship, but when the fact that when you lose an airship and then you get another one, I feel like that is a pretty awesome thing <laughs> in general. But you're right. I mean, the, again, the atmosphere of this game, that like impact, the way the characters kind of interact with each other and have these like mm -hmm. moments where they kind of think to themselves and... You know, it really just goes a long way to convey what's going on in the game and, you know, the compelling character arcs that make this game what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is a perfect setup for the next one on our list, number five, which is the Slaughter of Doma. And this part takes place fairly early in the game, 
and you are witnessing the Empire's forces, led by Kefka, fighting the Kingdom of Doma. Although actually at first, the fight is led by General Leo, who, unlike Kefka, is not a psycho, but he gets called away back to the main Imperial city, and Kefka takes over, and he decides he does not want to have a fair battle, so he poisons Doma's water supply. And then you get to see, like, literally almost every character in the Castle of Doma just, like, keeling over and dropping dead. And yes, it is just, you know, these sort of cute 16-bit super deformed sprites. But even so, this is like, you know, pretty powerful stuff, especially when you have one of the main playable characters, Cyan, witnessing like his king and his wife and his little, you know, child of like, you know, five years old or something, like all dying right before his eyes. And, you know, it's not gory or anything, but it is probably one of the most brutal scenes in any RPG, and it really stays with you. Yeah, and honestly, it's kind of at that moment where Kefka goes from being cute and funny to like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's when you realize just what a psycho he is, for sure. He's a total psychopath. Yes, absolutely. That's another good point as well. But from there, that takes us to number four on the list, which is the Phantom Train. After the slaughter happens at Doma Castle... The heroes make a break for it, which leads them to this haunted forest and then to this phantom train. So you have to fight the undead and avoid the zombies that are chasing you and solve puzzles on board this haunted train. And then at the end, you actually get to fight the train engine itself while you're running along the railroad tracks. And perhaps the coolest part, though, is that during this fight, you can actually suplex the train. (laughs) (laughs) which you know may be the one and only time either in video game history or in human history where such a thing is possible (laughs) you know i kind of forgot about that but that's pretty rad yeah we just love to suplex a train yeah you know this scene genuinely kind of creeped me out when i was younger i remember you kind of keep moving through the cars and you like see little ghosts oh yeah it's ghosts not zombies my mistake and then eventually they all kind of run out and like surround you and they like yep, yep. you get the nowhere to run. Yeah. Nowhere to hide. No escape for you. Yep. And then you think, like, what the hell's gonna happen? And then of course you end up fighting the train, but that whole sequence is pretty spooky, I'm not gonna lie. No, you are spot on. That is completely correct. And you know, the music in this area is excellent as well. Obviously that's sort of a recurring theme here. The music is pretty much excellent throughout the entire game. But uh, yeah, I mean just the whole thing really sells the atmosphere. Yeah, it really does. Okay, on to number three then. We have the game's final boss, who is, indeed, Kefka. (laughs) But not just any old Kefka. Uh, No, no it's not. It is super-powered, multi-stage, gigantic Kefka. As we mentioned before, he's a great character, he's a total lunatic, and throughout the course of the game he does gain immense power and is pretty much a god by the time you get to fight him at the end. The battle against him has three diverse phases. I believe you get to select like 12 different characters to go into battle against him. Like you swap in new characters, the previous characters get defeated. And the thing that really makes this battle stand out again is the music that plays when you fight him. The tune is called Dancing Mad. It is this super dramatic tune that evolves from like orchestral organ music into this very energetic rock-like tune and as you go through each stage of the fight the music evolves with it on the soundtrack this tune is more than 17 minutes long and it really makes the fight one of the most epic moments in video games and of course needless to say it is a very satisfying when you finally emerge victorious against kefka yeah i mean you know now we joke because there are games where you know the boss morphs into like three different versions and it's like oh wow <laughs> like didn't see this coming but honestly at this <laughs> yeah, point kind of expected at this point in time in video games this was kind of cutting edge really like they were out there but not to this degree not where you like were like oh clearly i beat him oh no i didn't <laughs> <laughs> and yeah it's just a really intense battle i mean i remember losing this battle more than i remember winning <laughs> yeah it can be pretty tough if you go in unprepared. I often spend a lot of time leveling up to prepare before going into this fight, for sure. And then the third evolution of him, isn't he like like multiple, like, creatures and, like, weird 
Am I thinking of that right? Uh, I think that might be some of the earlier phases. I think in the last one, he's basically oh, sort yeah. of like this godlike, almost angelic form. You know, that's right. Angelic mixed with a psychotic clown person. Yeah, definitely one of the more memorable boss fights of the SNES era. Or any era, I would probably say. Yeah, true. Okay, on to number two then. Again, we've got a big spoiler here, but the number two memorable moment is the end of the world. Because basically, halfway through the game, a lot of crazy stuff happens. You know, magical beings called espers attack the Empire. You sort of make a temporary truce with the Empire, with the bad guys. You travel to this flying magical island up in the sky. Anyway, up there, there are these three magic statues. And apparently, they keep the world in balance. But, you know, long story short, Kefka throws everything out of whack. He moves the statues. And basically, the world falls apart. The continents are rearranged, all these crazy monsters are unleashed, you know, there's hellfire and brimstone, you know, dogs and cats living together, (laughs) all the plants die off, basically everything bad that could happen, happens. And the bad guy, essentially, you know, he wins. Yeah, it's pretty mind-blowing at that point. You just don't expect that kind of thing to happen in a game. Right, totally. I mean, that stuff does not generally happen in video games or storytelling of any kind. It was a pretty darn bold move. Right. And Kefka, again, going full evil, and you're like, wow, okay. (laughs) I guess he's not this funny, overreacting (laughs) little pipsqueak anymore. Yeah, I mean, by that point, he was already a psychotic murderer, but uh, yeah, yeah, he does some especially evil things in these scenes. And, you know, even after the whole world is, you know, kind of ending and on the verge of collapse, you know, the story from there just gets even more interesting. You know, you get a whole new overworld to explore, and the story begins to be about, you know, all the characters coming back from this mass destruction, you know. The next thing that happens is you're playing as just this one character on this nearly deserted island, and that's just as memorable as the destruction of the world is itself. Uh, And it really takes the story to places where a few games dare to go. Yeah, I definitely remember that sense of, like, hopelessness, really. It's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, what am I supposed to do at this point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not wrong. It's like, okay, everything's been ruined. How do we go and uh, continue the story from here? But nonetheless, they pull it off and do so quite admirably. Absolutely. And so that brings us to the game's number one most memorable moment. Oh, this has to be me deleting your save file, right? <laughs> you know, I'm surprised that we made it this far into this discussion without either of us bringing that up. But yes, you are correct. That is the most memorable moment. You completely erasing my save file at Nintendo. <laughs> well, it is my most memorable moment. <laughs> you probably got a lot of enjoyment out of that, didn't you? <laughs> you know, for what it's worth, I really didn't. I, I felt bad. And I didn't want sure. to face you, but... <laughs> Sure you didn't. Sure you didn't. Clearly bygones are bygones. Mm-hmm. I'll get my revenge one day. <laughs> uh, we are completely joking, of course. Not about me getting my revenge, but <laughs> about the most memorable moment of the game. No, it is actually the opera scene. Oh, yes. How can you forget this? Yeah, I feel like even if you have never played Final Fantasy VI for whatever reason, you probably know about the opera scene just you know via word of mouth. It might seem kind of trite by today's standards, but it was pretty darn groundbreaking 25 years ago. Like, you know, when I first played this, you know, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit. I'm like, oh, an opera scene? This is going to be kind of lame, you know? <laughs> but I was so totally wrong. Like, this scene taught me a lot about what's possible in video games, you know? The games could have this sort of unique type of storytelling and do something that's different and unexpected and, you know, mature, really. And it's not just about, you know, fighting and beating up the bad guys. Yeah, I mean, it's such a bizarre scene when you really boil it down and think about, like, <laughs> why it's there and all that. And I remember the same thing, like, as a, you know, I don't know how old I was, probably 14 or something. And uh, <laughs> being like, what? I really have to, like, listen to this character sing and, like, read the lyrics. And <laughs> yep. But then, yeah, you find yourself kind of drawn in. And then, you know, there's this whole, like... You know, you're up in the rafters while this <laughs> things are going on on stage. And yeah, it just becomes like, honestly, one of the most memorable moments in any video game I can remember. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. I mean, first, you have to like sort of watch this play. And, you know, it's this interactive opera where you do, like you said, you have to recite lyrics and, you know, dance a little bit with <laughs> another one of the characters. 
But yeah, then from there, it just pushes the boundaries of video game storytelling. And again, with the music, it becomes especially emotional and endearing. And, you know, somehow they almost make you think you're like listening to actual human voices, like singing the song. I mean, that's how good the music is. But then after all this stuff, you know, it's like, okay, things are maybe getting a little too sappy here. And then you're like fighting a giant talking octopus. So <laughs> it pretty much has everything you would want. You know, it's got the drama. It's got the comedy. It's got the action. It's got the music. This scene pretty much covers everything. Yeah. You know, I almost felt like, and this might be a stretch, but I feel like Back to the Future 2 almost, almost gives a little shout out to this <laughs> scene in the sense that, you know, you got Marty McFly who's playing on stage, but the, like another version of him crawling around in the top of the, the rafters. I don't know. I feel like there's a little respect being paid there. Maybe not. I'm pretty sure the Back to the Future 2 came out first, but uh, <laughs> we'll pretend that's the case nonetheless. <laughs> well, then maybe that influenced this. <laughs> Who knows? Well, either way you look at it, there you have it. The 10 most memorable scenes of Final Fantasy VI and some of the best in role-playing game history. All right, Hoff, before we wrap this thing up, I'm curious, who are the top four characters in this game, in your opinion? Ah, good question. I mean, the game has a lot of great playable characters. Uh, one of the things I love about this game is that it does have such a diverse cast, and pretty much any character can be great in your party. You know, everyone has fairly decent physical abilities. Everybody can learn magic. That's one of the things I love about it. But everyone also has these unique diverse skills but and i'm going to narrow it down to just my top four i think number four would be tara she's initially the main character of the game but by the end it is very much about the ensemble cast still she's a great magic user and for that reason she tends to be a mainstay in my party uh, number three i would go with cyan he's an awesome physical fighter especially when he's dual wielding and i like to set him up so he can attack like eight times in one turn and when he does that he's just a monstrous powerhouse plus his Unique, old-timey speech was always a great character trait. <laughs> uh, number two favorite character, I would go with Sabin. He features a bunch of martial arts attacks. They're executed through Street Fighter-style button commands, which I always really, really enjoyed. And he is the one who can suplex a train, so that really says it all. And then number one would be Edgar. Not only is he a king, not only is he very popular with the ladies... But he is also an inventor of sorts who has a wide variety of really cool tools at his disposal. Like, he is almost overpowered. His other crossbow can attack every enemy on the screen for solid damage. And he can use both a chainsaw and a power drill to inflict a ton of hurt on enemies. Like, he even occasionally pulls out a Jason Voorhees hockey mask when he uses <laughs> his chainsaw to one-hit kill an enemy. So, yeah, Edgar is just totally awesome. Yeah, plus his name is Edgar. <laughs> also, special shout-out to Gogo. Because he can use anyone's abilities, so he can use drills and chainsaws and also suplex just about anyone in his path, which makes him an awesome party member in my book. So, yeah, there you go. Edgar Sabin, Cyan, Terra, with a special shout-out to Gogo. Now, are you sure Gogo's a guy? Eh, might not be. Hard <laughs> to know for sure. I agree with your list. The only thing I would maybe add would be a shout-out to Shadow. Oh, yeah. I always appreciated him, as well as, obviously, my favorite Yeti, Umaro. <laughs> all right makes sense to me okay so there you have it a whole great list of reasons as to why final fantasy 6 aka final fantasy 3 is still 25 years later one of the best rpgs in the business mm -hmm. and with that said it is time for us to wrap up this week's episode of the show but before we do so we do have time for one more thing which is indeed a dramatic reading next week is halloween so in preparation for that, this dramatic reading is the eShop description of the Wii U and 3DS game known as Horror Stories. How did you imagine how murders are being committed by serial killers? You find yourself in one of these situations, in which you need not to catch the eye of the killer and try to survive by killing him. <laughs> Do not catch the eye of the killer. If he notices you, you will surely die. Find items that can be used to create a trap. Hide from the killer in the closets or under the bed. Learn how the killer behaves to avoid meeting him. <laughs> okay. There you have it. Yeah, there you go. Short 
and sweet, I guess. I didn't realize that Wii U games were still being released in the year 2019, but there you go. Yeah, and I like how some of these sentences just don't make any sense. <laughs> no, no they don't. I'm mostly just confused by reading this, but I do know I can hide in a closet. <laughs> On the other hand, graphically speaking, it doesn't look too terrible. No, it doesn't. I don't think I'll be buying it, but uh, no, it doesn't <laughs> look terrible. No, I don't think I am planning to get it myself, but... If I did, I would definitely be sure to not catch the eye of the killer. Because if I did, I would surely die. <laughs> now, what do you think's worse, the description for this game or the box art? I don't think I've seen the box art, so you'll have to describe it for me. Well, it kind of looks like the cover of like a Goosebumps novel from, <laughs> from our youth. Okay. Well, that sounds very exciting. Complete with the uh, 80s like drippy blood font. <laughs> I guess I'll have to check that out. It sounds absolutely fantastic. <laughs> If you play it, let me know how it is. Well, with Halloween right around the corner, now is sort of the perfect time. You know, if you're still into Wii U games. <laughs> or 3DS games. Yeah, that's true. And you know I am. <laughs> All right, well, that does it for this week. As always, you can find us at powerpros.podbean.com, and you can follow us at powerprospod on both Facebook and Twitter. You can follow me, The Hoff, on Twitter at ChrisTheHoff, and you can find Pete at BurlyReadyEddy. You can email us at powerprospod at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, it would be great if you told your friends about us. Thanks for listening, everybody. For myself, Pete Mashad, and our good friend, Abobo, my parents didn't love me enough as a baby. We will see you next time.